Hi, everyone. Welcome to this edition of Roar Lions Radio. I'm your host, Bill DeFilippo. Uh, happy holidays. Merry Christmas. Uh, every All that from all of us here at Roar Lions Roar. We decided we wanted to do a special edition of the podcast because we had some big news today. And here to talk about it with me is Matt DeBear. Matt, what's going on? I am watching the, the riveting walk-ons Independence Bowl between Louisiana Tech and Miami, and we had about five minutes of excitement with Tate Martell in for Miami, and he, he, he has since been removed from the game after one ineffective series. Well, listen, uh, you, you got to always play the hot hand. I, I We actually should probably stop uh, making jokes about... We should not make any jokes about this game uh, because we don't want to ha- make fun of the... Uh, power five team that can't beat the group of five team in their bowl game because that, that you know karma would come back to bite us pretty hard on that one i'm uh, uh i fear but we'll get to that in a second uh of course we're going to talk a little bit about penn state's cotton bowl matchup against memphis a little bit later in the podcast before we get to that we're recording this uh a few hours after it was announced that penn state has its offensive coordinator uh kirk soraka the former off now former offensive coordinator and quarterbacks coach at uh, at Minnesota came over with PJ Fleck from Western Michigan and is an interesting name is a name that I think a lot of people threw out as a potential name to watch for Penn State as a look for an offensive coordinator due to the fact that he is a native of Lewisbury, Pennsylvania. Uh, I believe that, yeah, that's down in York County, so not too terribly far from Happy Valley, knows the area a little bit, knows how to coach in the Big Ten, and unfortunately all of us got to see one hell of a job interview when his Gophers took down Penn State in Minneapolis earlier this year, Matt, I I think that there are a lot of reasons to be really optimistic about this hire. Like I do get a little bit of the skepticism and we'll dive into that in a moment, but it's uh, 9.30 a.m. It's the day after Christmas. You're waking up. Maybe your belly was a little full yesterday. Maybe your head hurts a little bit because of some decisions that you made after all the presents were opened. You wake up, you look at your phone, and you see Kirk Soraka's coming to Penn State. What were your thoughts on the hire? Um, surprised and not. Um, and I think the surprise was more a matter of just how quiet it had been. Um, I think there was a lot of just um, natural speculation that Joe Brady um, down at LSU was a guy that, that Penn State was really targeting just for the obvious connections as a, a former grad assistant and the success he had this year, but you really didn't hear from the usual sources, you know, whether it be a Bruce Feldman or Chris Vanini or some of the guys on the national beat that follow the, the coaching carousel um, at the level of, of assistant coaches and, and lower, you never really heard a whole lot about where Penn state was looking until nine 30 on Thursday morning, December 26, when a uh, Shiraka was announced as, as the guy. Um, when we, when Ronnie, Ricky Ryan took the head coaching job at ODU um, a couple weeks ago, he was probably the one guy that was on everyone's hastily put together guys to consider for the position list. Um, he and Joe Brady were probably the two names that appeared um, on close to 100% of those lists. Um, and like you said, he had the obvious connections to Pennsylvania. Being from Lewisbury, he played college ball at Temple and Juniata. Um, the the Big Ten coaching connection, he's actually coached at Rutgers back about 10, 12 years ago um, with uh, Greg Schiano briefly. So a guy who's been around college football for a long time, been a play caller for a long time and has really had success 
especially in his last two stops in Kalamazoo, Michigan with uh, Western Michigan and then um, with the Gophers in Minneapolis. Um, I think the, the excitement comes from, for me, from looking at the success he's had in both those last two stops once he's kind of gotten the talent level in there that, that you need. I don't think it was so much of a, a personnel fit, but you look at where both Minnesota and Western Michigan were when, when he and PJ Fleck got there, there was just a lack of talent really more than anything that needed to be built back up. And once they did that, um, you saw it this year with Minnesota and you saw it really in 2016 with Western and even hints of it in 2015 with the Broncos where things really started to click. Um, and I wrote about it on the site today, just kind of a little, um, recap of, of what he's done with, uh, Zach Terrell at Western Michigan, um, who started starting in 2014. So that is the, uh, the first year, I believe uh, second year that, that PJ Fleck and, and Shiraka were in Kalamazoo. Um, he threw for over 30, 3,400 yards every year that he was the full-time starter, um, over 3,500 in his last two years. Um, those last two years, he also threw for over 60 touchdowns and just 13 interceptions. And then we saw firsthand, like you said, Bill, what he was able to do with Tanner Morgan um, at, at Minnesota this year for nearly, nearly 3,000 yards, 28 touchdowns, and just six interceptions. Um, and what really stood out to me is, you know, at Minnesota this year, both Rashad Bateman and Tyler Johnson went over 1,000 yards. Um, but then you look at what he did in 2016 at Western – and they had a running back, uh, one running back that had nearly 1,300 yards and one that had almost 1,000 yards um, while they were still putting up those big passing numbers. So he's really shown an ability um, in that, you know, kind of some some selective sampling, admittedly, looking at specific years there of, of using the talent he has. And what's intriguing to me at Penn State is he's walking into a situation where, for the most part, the talent's in place. I think... Like we've talked about a lot, the wide receiver position is a huge question mark, but he's got four running backs um, on the roster right now and two more coming in in the recruiting class. He's got a really good offensive line that's really come together. Um, and I don't think there's any questioning Sean Clifford's natural talent. I think it's just getting him to the next step. And along with his success as a play caller, his success as a quarterback coach, I think is just as vital here. Mm-hmm. Um, is like we've talked about and like you'll see on the playoff games on Saturday – elite quarterback play, whether it's from elite five-star top 10 recruits like Justin Fields or Trevor Lawrence or guys like Jalen Hurts or Joe uh, Burrow, who are both top 200, top 300 kind of players, you still need that high-level quarterback play, whether it's from an elite recruit or a guy that you develop a little bit. And Sean Clifford certainly um, falls into that latter category as a talented guy that just needs a little bit of seasoning. And I think that's something that um, from a – uh, from a Penn State standpoint, should be really exciting because you've got a guy that has this proven track record of when he has a guy that that has the the tools, he's been able to bring those out and and utilize them successfully. Uh, to read a quote that James Franklin said after uh, the hire was announced in Penn State's official uh, press release, he's a veteran coordinator who also has deep Pennsylvania roots and ties. His most recent successes as an offensive coordinator caught our eye. What impressed me most about Kirk in the hiring process was his humility and willingness to make this an easy transition for our players. And I bring that quote up because my number one thought when I think about hiring Kirk Soraka over, uh, you know, trying to get Joe Brady, trying to get, trying to do what he did, what Franklin did with Joe Moorhead and bring in a guy who, uh, you know, there might have been a bit of an adjustment period getting used to this level. It, 
it's interesting because I think this is a very win now hire. Um, we've spoken about this on the pod a bit, but a thing that jumps out, the thing that I think we all agree about Penn State is that next year's team, uh, we're still waiting on a few NFL decisions, but based on the NFL decisions that we know, uh, really losing one contributor, uh, to the NFL in Yitor Grossmantos, but next year's team has the potential to be a playoff team. Next year's team has the potential to compete for a Big Ten championship in the national title. And I think what is signaled by this hiring is that James Franklin doesn't want to have to potentially wait for an offensive coordinator to find a groove, uh, get comfortable calling plays in the Big Ten, get comfortable coaching an offense in the Big Ten. He wants a guy who can come in, has a track record of proven success at this level of coaching football, and help them win football games right away. And I think that is what Kirk Soraka is going to do here. Or, oh, I think in a perfect world, that's what Bob Soraka is going to do here. Uh, quick timeout, because Bob Diaco is on my television right now as the defensive coordinator at Louisiana Tech, and I didn't know that, and I'm, that, that's very funny to me. Neither here nor there. Uh, yeah, that's, that, that's what just pops into my head when I see all of this. Like, what James Franklin wants to do is make sure that everything is in place. So from game, you know, maybe he uses game one uh, next year against, uh, I don't recall off the top of my head who that one is against. Kent State. Kent State. Maybe he uses game one to kind of get his feet under him. But starting in game two with that trip to Blacksburg, Penn State has to be firing on all cylinders and ready to go. And I think that getting a guy like Kirk Sharaka in, who... He is a pretty high floor as a coordinator. We've seen him do some really good stuff. One thing that you didn't mention there, Matt, and we'll talk about this in a second, he literally coached one of the greatest, most productive college receivers in all time of Corey Davis at Western Michigan. Like, people have put up stupid numbers under him. And how much of that's him, how much of that's P.J. Fleck, like, I'm sure there are going to be people who attribute the success to Fleck, and he's like, blah, blah, whatever. Results are what matter in college football, and this guy has gotten results and now he's going to be taking a bit of a step up. I mean, Minnesota was a really, really good team this year, a team that had uh, the potential to win the Big Ten. Of course, they came up a little bit short, but they put some really impressive offensive performances together, and he's going to basically have one game to get his feet under him and then go out and show that Penn State does deserve to be in the conversation for college, among college football's elite. And I think that's... I think that's interesting, and it's a, uh, it it's something that I like. Uh, one thing that I, I don't think we can compare it apples to apples to Joe Moorhead because we just don't know what that's going to look like yet. But I always like when James Franklin goes outside of his comfort zone to hire people, because I love when there are those extra voices in those pro the, those different voices in the program, different perspective, those sorts of things. I mean, we've seen with uh, Jawan Sider on the recruiting trail how he's fit in right away. Tyler Bowen has come in from, you know, he played at Maryland, coached elsewhere, and has a year or two under his belt, but is still not a Penn State guy through and through. That stuff helps, and that's something that James Franklin places an emphasis on, that. And, like, obviously, we don't know exactly how that's going to work out, but I think getting, kind of threading that needle between a new offensive coordinator, a new voice, and still someone who believes in a lot of the same principles that James Franklin believes in on offense, I, I think that can only be a good thing. Do you agree? 
Oh, for sure. And I think you and I talked about this um, a couple weeks ago on our the podcast we did after uh, one of the podcasts, at least after Ricky Ronnie uh, departed, is getting that that fresh voice. Not that um, you know Penn State's coaching staff is in disarray and you need to, to bring in some fresh blood and freshen things up. But I think you look around the country at at the the elite programs and they're losing assistant coaches pretty much on an annual basis because of their success. Um, Ohio State's um, lost already their co-defensive coordinator and Jeff Halfley to Boston College. It sounds like Mike Yelich is going to be going to Texas. Um, their their passing game coordinator. Um, you know, Alabama loses assistance every year, and very rarely do you see them exclusively promoting from within. You know, if there's a logical candidate internally, then yeah, it makes sense. But I think you see these places looking to bring in a fresh set of eyes, a different way of doing things, a guy that doesn't really have a direct connection to to your staff. So you're, you're getting a guy that in uh, Kirk Sriracha for sure, that has spent pretty much his entire career outside of the James Franklin coaching circle. And so he's going to bring just what he's picked up at all his stops. And that's only going to make, make things better. You're just going to get a fresh set of eyes, a guy that hasn't spent um, in some cases, six years at Penn state looking at the same, the same players, the same way of, of evaluating talent and all those things. It just, it can only help. And I think, like we've talked about, it takes you just look at the success that he's had everywhere he's gone, um, and especially in the last two stops with with PJ Fleck, and it's hard not to be excited. It's not not a brand new offense. It's not a, a completely different way of doing things. There's a lot of the same RPO kinds of elements and and uh, and things like that, but it's a different way of doing things, a different way of calling plays. Um, and I think the and James Franklin alluded to this in his press conference today down in Dallas that. They wanted someone that had experience calling plays, um, and I think as we get dive into things a little bit more with with how Sriracha runs his offense, you're going to see, sorry, Sharaka. I'm I'm going to get this wrong inevitably for the next twelve months at least. Um, you're going to see same sorts of formations, same sorts of personnel, but different ways of deploying them. Um, you saw the way they kind of slanted Penn State to death and then beat them over the top um, in Minneapolis earlier this year. I think he looks to run the ball a little bit more consistently than a lot of quote unquote, more modern offenses. Um, you're going to see him go about running the ball a different way for sure. Um, but a lot of the same principles that you talked about, Bill are still going to be there. Um, and so I think from a fit standpoint, it's really, um, it checks a lot of those boxes. You know, the proof will be in the pudding come September and October next year. Once, once the games get real. Um, but I think from a perspective of where Penn state is right now, like you said, being a program that expects to win next year, be in the conversation for the playoff, be in the conversation for the Big Ten East ch- title, be in the conversation for the conference championship. This is the kind of guy you go out and get. Um, you know, there's a guy that was considered for the West Virginia opening last year, um, up to stay in Minneapolis for another year. Um, he was connected to Texas. I saw somewhere earlier today. He actually Sorry interviewed with that, Tom Herman. Yeah, I, I forgot about earlier this year and all that. Uh, one last thing that I wanted to point out before we kind of get, dive into him. Uh, I don't know if this is lip service or what it is, but uh, it says that he he said that he grew up a Penn State fan, uh, which I I feel like if you put that in a uh, if you put that in like a press release and you were getting hired at a place like that's automatically just like ten bonus points to you. Uh, do you think he's going to hit us with any accidental row the boats? Do you think that's just like embedded in his brain or anything? It's going to be like a battle of the the James Franklin yeah. you know number one. And the um, and the the row the boats, you know, 
we haven't talked a whole lot about this, but there's a lot of similarities, at least personality-wise, from afar between P.J. Fleck and James Franklin. Yes. Of kind of the the master motivator, sound bites, you know, nice, catchy slogans. Um, so I, I don't know if we're going to row the boats. I think we might be able to make some row the boat jokes at some point, but uh, I had not given that one a whole lot of thought. You caught me off guard there. Yeah. Did, did I just accidentally, like, interrupt you while you were in the middle of a sentence because I had to mute my like mic and my speaker for a bunch of stuff and I just messed everything up I think you might have but it, uh, there was no way I was saying anything <laughs> terribly important All right, w- listen I think by now our low production value is part of the charm of this podcast so uh, it, it, anyone if you want to hear uh, what if you want to complain and say that you wanted to hear what Matt was saying before I interrupted him, make sure you DM me on Twitter and complain at the real end Pollock, and I will be happy to hear out whatever you have to say. Uh, let's get into his fit. I I think that based on every, I mean, we saw firsthand how good his offense is when it's cooking. He was able just last year, and I think this is why Penn State fans should have all the optimism of the world on this. We're going to get forget about the Zach Terrell stuff, uh, Corey Davis stuff, everything at Western Michigan. Just look at last year's Minnesota football team. They took Tanner Morgan, a first-time starter. He completed 66% of his passes, 28 touchdowns, 6 interceptions, nearly 3,000 yards. Rodney Smith was a, an 1,100-yard rusher. They had two 1,100-yard receivers, both of whom caught 11 touchdowns. And we saw when they came to Happy Valley, Matt, that they did something that reminded me a lot of Joe Moorhead. And we saw we saw some of this out of Ricky Ronnie, even though it wasn't quite as ruthless, uh, in part because, you know, Ronnie didn't have two NFL wide receivers, an NFL tight end, and two NFL running backs at his disposal. They When they noticed that Penn State could not stop them pushing the ball down the field, uh, when they noticed that Penn State secondary was in a bit of a state of disarray, they attacked and attacked and attacked and attacked. And yes, Penn State, they did slant Penn State to bit to death quite a bit. But in that same game, we saw plenty of big gains that came from the fact that Penn State's secondary just could not... I, Johnson Bateman had seven catches for 203 yards, Johnson seven for 104 yards. I think that's where most of my, that along with the developmental stuff with quarterbacks and wide receivers, most of my optimism comes from. Just the fact that philosophically, and he mentioned this in a video that I saw as I was doing some research on him, he wants to get guys in one-on-ones, he wants to hammer the fundamentals, and he wants to attack. If you put those things together... You can win just about anywhere, and you can have success just about anywhere. And now for really the first time in his career, he's mixing all of that philosophical knowledge with four- and five-star type talent. And to me, I am over the moon excited about that. Yeah, and I think um, what's going to be interesting to me is – that unquestionably the strength of Penn State's offense next year is going to be the running back position. You just look at the the four guys that played there this year, the two guys they're adding that could potentially play next year. Um, that's where you're, with the exception of potentially uh, of tight end for sure and potentially wide receiver if KJ Hamler comes back. That's where your playmakers are, and 
both, you know, this year with with Minnesota, the really the strength of the offense was their receivers, you know, Bateman and, and Johnson with the two uh, 1100 yard plus seasons. Um, and I know we're trying to focus on on Minnesota this year a little bit, but I went back and looked at his 2016 year um, at Western. Because I think from a a personnel standpoint, if you will, that matches up a little bit closer to what he's going to have next year at Penn State. Um, Jarvie and Franklin ran for over 1,350 yards, and then Jamari Bogan ran for 923 yards. They ran 20 touchdowns. Those two guys also caught 30 passes that year for about 350 yards. And then you had the uh, um, Corey Davis factor with 1,500 yards, 98 receptions, and 19, t- 19 touchdowns. Just some absurd numbers. Stupid. Um, like, and- I, 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 sorry to interrupt. I actually... Uh, I drafted Corey Davis in fantasy football this year, and like midway through the season, I realized that he wasn't very good. And I actually went, was he really as good as I remember him being in college? Or is that he was just like, or was he like a combine warrior? And then I went and looked at his numbers, and I went, oh, yeah, he caught 100 passes for 1,500 yards and 19 touchdowns in a year. So just for I, just for a moment imagine like Jahan Dotson or John Dunmore or Daniel George doing that how what I would give to get have a receiver who puts up those kinds of numbers yeah i think um one thing that i've seen pointed out a couple places just to kind of jump around a little bit here is he, both at minnesota and at western you know, Corey davis was I believe six two or six three a big receiver both bateman and johnson at, at minnesota are bigger receivers Penn State has those guys. Daniel George is a bigger guy. John Dunmore is a bigger guy. Um, the guys coming in this year, for the most part, are bigger receivers. Um, I don't think that's as, as big of a deal, but um, I think what that shows you between that tw- this year's Minnesota team and that 2016 Western Michigan team is he doesn't have one way of doing things. He's not going to to throw the ball all over the place if he doesn't have the personnel to do it, or probably more accurately, if he has a really good stable of running backs um, I also think, and this is going to be a little bit of a, a change in philosophy from both Joe Moorhead and Ricky Ronnie, is I think there's more, a little bit more of an emphasis on efficiency as opposed to chunk plays. You're still going to see those. You saw them against Penn State, but I think it's going to be more, um, you're going to see a lot more of running to set up the pass, a lot more short passes to set up the longer pass, um, you know, trying to, 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 to get down the field in chunks as opposed to trying to get down the field in 40 or 50 yard yard bursts and it'll be interesting to see kind of how this evolves um and again i think when you look at the personnel he's going to have to work with at least on paper it looks like that's going to be a little bit more of the logical way to go we're going to you know run the ball with journey brown and devin ford and noah kane and ricky slade and then we're going to you know pick our moments when we go down and field with the passing game um we're going to try you know you look at the way Minnesota ran their offense against Penn State with all those slants. That that looks to me like a perfect fit for a guy like Pratt Firemuth over the middle um, on those RPO looks. Um, so you're you're going to see um, some adaptation. And I think when you look at what he's done over his career, he's shown that he's not a fitting guys into his system. It's it's quite the opposite, fitting his system to his guys. Yeah, and I I'm glad you mentioned that chunk play thing because I. While I completely under like I get the math behind it completely, and I agree with the math behind it for the most like it's the uh, Bill Conley wrote that piece about how they're like three pointers where the only way to stop them is to allow other things or to basically concede other things. The issue with the chunk play thing that I've always had is that much like three pointers, if you 
you know, if you aren't hitting those threes, you need to be able to do something else or else you're just going to keep chucking and keep chucking and keep chucking and you're going to lose. There are times where I felt like Penn State could kind of be like that in the passing game. And if you're trading in the chunk plays for letting Sean Clifford throw short and intermediate passes, I'm going to be overjoyed with that because I think that's what Sean Clifford does best. Not to say that I don't think he can throw the deep ball or anything. I just think that he's going to be a good, smart, accurate, pick-you-apart kind of passer in this system, and that's an exciting thing for me. Uh, The one thing that I have seen, uh, the one concern that I've seen out of some Penn State fans is the fact that Shiraka has never, I I don't want to say never, but he's liked to have his running backs run the ball, his tight ends block, and his receivers catch passes. And I kind of get that concern, but at the same time, one, um, he's never had just the pure talent at running back and at tight end like he is going to have uh, with Pat Fryermuth, with Journey Brown, with Noah Kane, with all these guys that he's going to have at his disposal. And I'm going to go out on a limb and imagine that he's going to go- throw the football to Pat Fryermuth a bit. But B... And this is the other thing for me. If you are telling me that Pat Fryermuth is going to catch, you know, 15, 20 passes, mostly using the blocking game, but at the same time, Penn State is going to run for, you know, 2,100 yards, and they are going to have two 1,200-yard receivers, I kind of would take, I I suppose I would take that trade. But it's just, like, it's something I can't reconcile, Matt, the thought of Penn him coming in and suddenly going, okay, my tight end is never going to catch the football when it's Pat Fryermuth, and my running backs are never going to catch the football when I have these dudes. Like, I, I just have to imagine, and I could, there, I could be wrong about this, even though I'm willing to bet that I'm not going to be, that when he comes in and he gets a chance to kind of feel out this offense and see what he has, his eyes are going to light up like a kid in a candy store, and he's not He's going to be a bit more willing to use the talent that he has on hand just because he didn't have that sort of talent when he was at Minnesota or at Western. Yeah, I think it's, whether it's Kirk Shiracha or Shiraka, I'm going to get this right before the end of the podcast did you at like, least once. Did you like have Chinese food for dinner last night? Like you're saying Sriracha, basically. That's I've I've been had it in my mind since we listed him as a candidate two weeks ago. That's how it's pronounced. And I, I stumbled upon the Shiraka, Shiraka. Kirk, if you're listening, one, thank you for listening to. I'm sorry for continually butchering your name, but I digress. Also, I think, Kirk, if you're listening, come on the pod, man. We'd love to have you. Uh, yeah, I, I will gladly step aside for that one and let you talk to Bill for an hour. Um, but to, to answer the question, I think he's, w- whether it's him or any other offensive coordinator, um, successful offensive coordinator at least, you're you're not going to you're going to adapt to what you have. I, I find it downright impossible to believe that when he sat down with James Franklin, you know, a week or two ago and went through the interview process, um, that the idea of, Hey, we've got Pat Fryermuth, Hey, we've got Zach Koontz. Hey, we've got Brenton strange. Hey, we've got this elite, uh, freshman tight end, Theo Johnson coming in next year. We don't want to use them. I, I will almost guarantee you that, 
how how he envisions utilizing the talent that he has at tight end, the talent he has at running back, um, and probably to be honest with you, probably how he would work around the the lack of experience at wide receiver, especially if KJ Hamler doesn't return. Um, that is, we'll be surprised. I don't think anyone within the football program will be surprised at how that is handled in the 2020 season, just because. Um, any 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 football coach worth his weight is going to look at his personnel and adapt to that, and any football coach worth his weight is going to see what Penn State has and is going to realize, okay, we're going to throw to our tight ends. Okay, we're going to get our running backs involved. Maybe we're not going to rely on on the passing game to the degree that we did at Minnesota. Um, it just now it'd be great if Daniel George, for example, steps up and has a twelve hundred yard eighty catch season next year. That's probably not in the cards, um, at least not in his in in the 2020 season. Um, so, I, I get the concerns when you look at just the raw numbers that that were put together um, over his his last two stops, but I think that's way more of a function of the talent that he had there than a, a philosophy on how he wants to use his personnel. And the big thing with him is going to be coaching up Sean Clifford and co- well, Sean Clifford, uh, Will Levis, Taquan Roberson, Michael Johnson. Uh, whomever ends up being Penn State's quarterback next year, years beyond that, whatever. Uh, he does, fortunately, have a pretty good pedigree of coaching them. He uh, won a national championship as an offensive coordinator and quarterbacks coach at Delaware in 2003. Uh, he was the offensive coordinator for Joe Flacco at Delaware. Uh, we've mentioned a few times on here, Zach Terrell put up some really, really funny numbers uh, under his tutelage at uh, Western Michigan. And then this year, Tanner Morgan was a second team All-Big Ten selection from basically out of nowhere. So there's a lot to like about this. I think it's a really great hire. Uh, I don't think it, you know, it doesn't have the... Um, the, the shock value of hiring, say, Joe Brady. But I think he... yeah I, I think this is going to be a really good one. I'm very interested to see... Just even, like, the blue-white game, I'm interested to see if anything's a little bit different there. But we'll, we'll, we'll cross the bridge when we get to him. Before we get to that bridge, we have to talk about the bowl game. Penn State playing in the Cotton Bowl, heading down to Jerry World for a noon kick on ESPN from Arlington, Texas on Saturday... Uh, December 28th, Nittany Lions, seven-point favorites over the American Athletic Conference champions, over under a 60.5. Matt, I'm thinking really, really quickly we talk about this game. Memphis coming in at 12-1, and one, a, a damn good football team, uh, even if they've suffered some losses. Let's just kind of do a truncated version of our normal preview podcast where we talk as we talk about this one. Starting with Memphis's offense going up against Penn State's defense, uh, the Tigers number seven nationally in offensive SP plus. Uh, they have some absolute dudes all over the field. Brady White has put up very good numbers under center. Kenneth Gainwell, outstanding running back, and a wide receiver, really trio in Demonte Cox, Antonio Gibson. And Kadarian Jones, who rival what we've seen, they rival what we saw out of Minnesota in terms of guys who are able to make plays. What are you going to be paying attention to when the when Penn State's defense is on the field trying to slow down what has been a high powered, high flying Tiger offense? 
Well, John wrote about it on the site today, but the the guy that Penn State needs to stop is Kenneth Gainwell. They're 1,400-yard running back, um, 12 touchdowns on the year, over six yards a carry. Um, they certainly have the big passing numbers with Brady White, over 3,500 yards. Um, but this offense really goes as, as Gainwell goes. And Penn State, I think, with the exception of, of J.K. Dobbins, this is the best running back they'll, they'll have faced all season, the best running attack they've faced all season. And I'm really interested to see how how they handle a guy that, that's that talented. Um, I think if they can contain Gainwell, then that puts a lot of pressure on Brady White, who has, certainly has some weapons led by uh, DeMonte Coxie uh, with over 1,100 yards receiving this year, nine touchdowns. Um, he's really their, their top target with 68 catches. Um, I think be, with with Penn State's off defensive front, you know, you imagine some time to heal up, get healthy, recharge the batteries a little bit. I think Micah Parsons could have an absolutely huge game um, in, in containing Gainwell. That that's really going to be the, the the story for me. I think if Penn State can slow down the rushing attack, then that's going to allow them to, especially if they can do it without having to bring an extra uh, man or two. If that if that defensive front four, um, as they've done for the most part most of the year, can, has controlled the run really well and they can uh, sacrifice their linebackers in the, in the pass protection. That's really going to, I think put a lot on Brady white's plate. And I'm not sure um, when you do that, when you couple that with, you know, a guy like gross motto. So I think um, you figure his last game at Penn state, you know, want to make an impression, especially going into, into draft season, really going to be interesting to see if, if they can get Memphis into those obvious passing situations, if you can see Penn state secondary recover a little bit from where they've been, over the the last month of the year when they really started to struggle. I'm glad you mentioned the running game because that's kind of the big thing for Memphis. They're one of those teams that they like to be able to beat you on the ground and have that open up things in the passing game. And they have some very, very good uh, receivers who are able to punish you, even if uh, they're starting tight end, whose name I swear I am not making up is Joey Magnifico, is not going to be playing in this game. They're also going to be without starting right tackle Scotty Dill. Uh, it, that's kind of the thing for me. If Penn, it, it's weird. It's kind of a pick your poison thing with Memphis. Do you want those pa- those options in the passing game to try and beat you, or do you want to focus? Or do you want to focus on them? Give Gainwell a little more room to run. This ha- I think if this is ends up being one of those games where Penn State's offensive uh, defensive line is able to win up front, and you're a- you know you're able to maybe have to have a fifth guy there, but you can generally keep numbers back in the passing game, not get beaten over the top. I think this has the potential to be a game that Penn State. I don't want to say totally slows down Memphis because that's a really, really hard thing to do. But I think Penn State, that's basically its path to success. Like, it's something that we've been talking about all year, how we want to see them get home with four in the passing and in the rushing game. If they can do that here, I think they have the potential to really muck things up for this Tiger defense, especially now that Penn State's going to be at full strength, full health, full rest, all that. And also complicating things, head coach Mike Norvell, he is at Florida State right now. He has been their play caller. Now it's trying to find out, like, what is this Memphis offense going to look like? I can't imagine they're going to divert too far away from what they normally would be, but you're losing that special touch as a play caller from a guy who's really, really good at calling plays. 
Moving to the other side of the ball, Memphis also lost its defensive coordinator who joined Norvell at Florida State. And Tyler Bowen, he's going to be taking over, calling plays for uh, for this one. He's going to be an offensive coordinator someday, and this is going to be one hell of an audition for him for whenever that day comes. Matt, I, I, I think for me the big thing that I want to see, I just want to see Sean Clifford. He's talked about how... He views Joe Burrow as something as an inspiration. He wants to make that jump, that sort of jump to be one of the elite quarterbacks in college football next year. This is a one hell of an opportunity for him to do it against a Memphis defense that's a bit suspect. For sure. And I think um, just looking at the, at the raw numbers, I think they're 33rd or 35th, something like that in SP+. But then when you get into the um, kind of their, their just overall team rankings, this isn't an especially stout Memphis defense, I think you're going to see, um, if I had my way, I think you're going to see a real commitment to running the football. Um, Memphis gives up um, over 170 yards a game on the ground, um, and you figure they're going to be facing probably the most physical offensive line um, that they've seen all year in, in Penn State's offensive front, which, say for the Ohio State game, has been been pretty solid. Um, and then you figure you've got, got four running backs who are all healthy. You've got Sean Clifford, who... Um, by all accounts, should be closer to 100% um, than he has been at really any time since probably the Michigan game this year. So I think you're going to see him um, as a more effective runner than he's been up to you know over the last month of the year. Um, but but like you said, I think it's an opportunity for Clifford especially to to show a, a market step forward. I don't think you know if he you don't see that big step, it's reason to be concerned. Um, you know the the real the real work in that comes over the the winter spring and summer um and now with his new quarterback coach but it's bowl games have a way of driving the narrative all summer um we saw it with with texas knocking off georgia last year and and the hype that they got going to this year we're back they weren't back no no so uh, here's the funny thing texas is bad That is, I don't know what I, I don't know where to go with that. I was, I was waiting for for some sort of sort of uh, expanded thought, but as, as far as the the Penn State side of this is concerned, in bull hype and 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 driving the offseason talk, um, a solid performance, especially from a guy like Sean Clifford, that's going to be looked to during the next season to be kind of the guy that can can drive Penn State to that next level a solid performance in on a new year six game in a national TV audience um, in a major bowl game is going to, to be a factor. So I think seeing that I would love to see, you know, Jahan Dodson, Daniel George, some of these um, second and third tier options in the passing game um, start to flash a little bit more. Um, Cause I think that's, that's the the question mark going into next year regardless. And, and Jahan Dodson even alluded to it a little bit um, uh, in the, in recent weeks saying that, you know, they feel like they're really close to taking that next step and it's just a matter of putting it all together now. Um, this, this is a great opportunity to do it. You know, it's, it's for all intents and purposes, an exhibition game, but it's still, as far as the way you go into the off season on a positive note with a solid performance can just, can really have a, a big impact. I think just in kind of your mindset as you go into the, to, to winter conditioning and things like that. Yeah. Uh, Mark Wogenrich of the Allentown Morning Call had the tweet. Uh, Penn State QB Sean Clifford said today that he has studied LSU's Joe Burrow recently. He noted Burrow's 394-yard 4TD game versus UCF in the Fiesta Bowl. That's the only thing I'm thinking about, winning this game and then going on to do the same type of thing that Burrow did. So 
I I want to see that kind of step forward from Clifford. I want to see now that he's healthy, now that he's rested, he's going to have some time to plan, prepare, uh, get his body right, get his mind right, and go up against a defense that, like you mentioned, Matt, they're 33rd in defensive SP+, 33rd in passing defense, 46th in scoring defense, 48th in total defense, 80th in passes defended. They were 36th in sacks and 57th in interceptions, so middle-ish to pretty solid there. The other thing that I'm very interested in, and I don't necessarily know if this is like what this is a function of it might literally just be that they're not good at this they were 80th in rushing defense this year and i have to imagine that penn state's offensive line all rested all healthy everyone but steven gonzalez is coming back next year with that stable of running backs they're going to want to run all over them and we're going to see a penn state offense that you, you know there's the uh there's the belief that being the be, being the team that plays against the group of five champion, you know, it, you're in a lose-lose situation because either you win the game you're supposed to win or you lose the game that you're supposed to win. I think that Penn State's not going to have that problem. I think they're going to come out ready to go. They're going to come out firing. They're going to come out knowing that, like you mentioned with Texas, they can kind of shape the narrative for how this offseason is going to go. And if they can come out and they could you know, beat up on a Memphis team that is 13th in offensive, I mean, 13th in SP plus just in general. I think that's something that they're going to want to try and do as they head to next season. They try and get all this preseason hype, whatever else happens. Well, I think from that mindset standpoint, Penn State benefits a lot from the number of, of key contributors that are, that are coming back next year. Mm-hmm. Either they've announced they're already coming back or they still have or they're they're ineligible to, to, to leave early. Um, even if they're not starters, just the number of guys, especially on the defensive side of the ball that Penn State plays, um, they're back next year. And I think it's the, the teams that have struggled and and this is hardly a scientific uh, study, the teams that have struggled in, in the group of five or group of six versus power five bowl game have been the ones where the new year's six game against the group of six team is kind of seen as a letdown. I don't know if that's the case for Penn state. I think this is a team that people talked about, you know, as an eight, maybe nine win team playing in, in the holiday bowl. I think it's, it's seems unfathomable to me for this specific Penn state team to to not to be let down by being where they're at. They're at a New Year's Six game. They're playing in, in Cowboys Stadium or I guess AT and T Stadium now, and it just it it feels between the personnel and just the coaching staff's one game at a time mantra. Respect every opponent. It feels really unlikely that this is going to be a Penn State team that's going to kind of be oh man you know I don't want to be here. I don't want to be playing a a, a Memphis this team i would rather be in the rose bowl or, or i'd rather be in florida playing auburn that seems unlikely just given the, the makeup of this group as a whole i'm guessing that's basically the biggest thing you want to see them come out just with that energy with that fire all that yeah i think really just as far you, you control the game you know win the battle up front on both sides of the ball um be aggressive and and just you know establish that that we're here we're, we're going to play we're not going to sleepwalk through this one I would agree with that, and the other thing that I'm uh, I'm interested in, special teams I think are going to be huge in this game. Penn State's seventh in special teams SP+. Memphis is third. Uh, f- f- 
quoting from uh, my former home onward state and its sports account on this one franklin noted that memphis started its conference title game against cincinnati with an onside kick and he thinks we might see something similar at the start of saturday's cotton bowl classic when you know a team's going to try and do something like that and they're going to try and get points through special teams you have to be on high order at all times and I want to see, one, if Memphis is going to try and do that, and two, if Penn State's going to be ready for it. Because that those kinds of plays and those extra possessions are the kinds of things that can determine whether or not you end up winning or losing. So I'm I, I'm keeping an extra close eye on that this one, but I think that, uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot about this game uh, that I find interesting. There's a lot about this game from a Penn State perspective that I think is really interesting. Matt, I'll let you go first on a score prediction. What do you think is going to happen in this one? Well, it's Penn State's their seven-point favorite. I've I've never had a doubt that Penn State's going to win this game. That's probably just a little bit of natural fan arrogance in me. But um, I think when you look at Memphis's defense, especially um, the these group of six teams that have had success in these games have typically been teams that um, are are a little bit more. Um, well-rounded on defense and Memphis just really isn't, especially when it comes to the run and that matches up so well with what Penn state wants to see, wants to do. Um, I don't think it's going to be, you know, a huge high scoring game. I could be wrong, but I think um, Penn state's going to try and control the clock a little bit more with their running back. So I, I'm thinking something like, you know, 31, 20, 31, 24, something along those lines, Penn state. I'm going to say Penn State 38, Memphis 28. I think the Memphis is going to be able to score. I think Penn State's going to be able to score. And I just think Penn State, at the end of the day, has the horses that Memphis doesn't. But Memphis is going to come out firing, and I think this is going to be a... It's going to be an absolute blast, which we can't say about the first Big Ten game that we're going to be talking about right here on Friday. We're going to go right through the whole Big Ten bowl slate here, ladies and gents. Friday, December 27, 320 kick from historic Yankee Stadium, home of the 27-time World Series champion New York Yankees. Uh, I hate you, Bill. Why? Uh, we did not need any Yankee talk on, on this podcast. Let's go, Yankees. Michigan State playing Wake Forest, 6-6 six and six Spartans, 8-4 and four Deacons. Michigan State, four-point favorite, over-under of 50, which that seems... Like it might be a bit high. Uh, I I don't like anything about this game, Matt. I don't have a winner. I don't have a loser. I think that everyone's going to lose, but I hope the fans have a good time. I have a few friends who are going to be attending this one. Uh, but I am definitely thinking under fifty. Yeah, and I we I just mentioned it with with regard to the the whole power five versus uh, group of six matchup. The, that that. Who wants to be there more comes into play so much in some of these these second tier games, and a, a team like Michigan State that's just really struggled, especially on offense all year with a lot of seniors, a lot of guys that this is their last game. You wonder how much juice they really have in the tank for for the pinstripe bull against Wake Forest. Um, I think from a, just a talent standpoint, I think they'll hang around, but um, I am definitely with you with, on the under fifty and. Um, would not be at all surprised if Wake Forest wins this one. Yeah, unfortunately, Wake won't be uh, with star wide receiver Sage Sherratt, who is awesome, and it's unfortunate that he's out for the season. But neither here nor there. Uh, the other kick on Friday night, 8 p.m., FS1, USC against Iowa from SDCCU Stadium in San Diego in the Holiday Bowl. Uh, this, this game's interesting, man. I Like, 
I, I'm inclined to say that I think USC wins this one, if only because, like, I don't think the Holiday Bowl could be a must-win must under 95% of circumstances, but I think f- considering everything that's happened this offseason with USC, I think Clay Helton really, really could use a win here. This is one of the more interesting games just in, in all the bowls, um, Big Ten or otherwise, because um, I think you're a real clash of styles, if you will. Um, Caden Slow is, is, is great. Um, I'm really interested to see how Iowa defends him. Um, I'm really interested to see how USC responds as a team to all this noise about Clay Helton and, and the decision to keep him on for the, another year when you've got pretty much the entire fan base wanted him out um, and wanted James Franklin or Urban Meyer or another big-name non-USC guy in there. Um, Iowa under Kirk Ferentz has been really good in bowl games. Um, I don't have the exact number in front of me, but it just feels like they're always always in games and games where you feel like they're kind of outmatched from a talent standpoint. They find ways to win. Um, it's, Iowa's a two-and-a-half-point favorite here. I think they win this one, actually. I think it's actually going to be a pretty entertaining game, all things considered. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm, th- th- this one's going to be fun. I think it'll... Uh, the Holiday Bowl, ga- I, I don't know if you remember this, but it give, gave me maybe my favorite random Big Ten Bowl moment, which is when Indiana was in it a few years ago. They uh, stepped up to the line of scrimmage for a last-second Hail Mary, and their quarterback, Richard Legow, pointed up to God before taking the snap. Uh, but either there was a delay of game or they had to call a timeout. There was a false start or something. So he had to do that exact same thing, only he didn't point up to God this time, and it didn't work. So I that, that one stuck with me because that's like Indiana football in a microcosm before they decided to get good at it. Uh, we'll skip over... Saturday has uh, the Cotton Bowl and one of the semifinal games. I think we'll skip over the semifinal game for now and come back to that because that's more important than anything else we're talking about, such as on December 30th in Santa Clara at Levi Stadium, the Red Box Bowl, which is apparently a thing, Cal against Illinois. Uh, This game is going to be hideous. It's going to be gross. It's going to be not fun to watch. Uh, Cal's a a six-and-a-half-point favorite. Matt, take a wild guess what the over-under is on this one. Uh, I, I actually have the, the <laughs> pulled up, so so I know it's an absurdly low 43. <laughs> as low as that sounds, this this can't be worse than last year's Red Box Bowl. Yes, this is a recurring uh, annual event now at uh, at um, whatever the, the 49 Stadium is called. But uh, Michigan State, Oregon last year in the same bowl game, I think was like 13-10 or 10 <sighs> Something, something very disgusting like that. And and fun fact, I watched that game on an iPhone at a bar at uh, Disney Springs last year, <laughs> leading up to the the Citrus Bowl game. So uh, Jesus, man, I I have some some issues. We need to talk through another podcast. But um, I I might find myself watching this one on Monday just because hey, it's football and there's not a whole lot left. But um, that's about all I can say positive about either of these teams, I think. Yeah. Um, December, listen, December 30th, penultimate day of the year. You're going to be real drunk the following night. Just use this one. Stay in, relax, maybe read a book, uh, do some cleaning around the house. Don't worry about watching this football game. You, you could do other things that are better than at 4 PM on a Monday. Uh, New Year's Day, uh, the normal New Year's Day bowl slate, which included one game that I forgot was happening, and when I 
remember that it was happening before this podcast, I laughed very hard and told Matt we'll talk about it on the pod. But before we get to that one, Outback Bowl, 1 p.m. kick, Raymond James Stadium in Tampa, Florida on ESPN. Minnesota, uh, without offensive coordinator, taking on Auburn. Auburn is a seven-point favorite. I think, Matt, this one has the potential to be really, really fun. Uh, Minnesota's defense likes to... Minnesota's defense likes to attack, and Auburn's offense isn't always able to make you pay for that, but when Bo Nix is able to make guys pay, he really is able to get the job done. Then on the other side of the ball, this Minnesota offense with their big play guys, with how they're able to win those one-on-one battles going up against a nasty, nasty Auburn defense, that's legitimately going to be really fun to watch. I don't know if Minnesota is going to be able to break Auburn's defense enough for that to matter, but they're going to give it their best shot and it's going to be fun to watch. Yeah, I think anytime you get Gus Malzahn versus PJ Fleck, things are going to get pretty interesting. I have no idea what to expect of this one, but I think it's, like you said, going to be a pretty interesting game to watch. I think you could have some fireworks. Um, I We talked about I mean, out of the Minnesota-Penn State game that those two receivers, Tyler Johnson and uh, and Bateman, are just really, really good. And I think they could play in just about any team in the country. And from an athletic standpoint, I don't think there's a a gap in terms of what they're going to be going up against in the, the Auburn secondary. Um, if Minnesota's offensive line can give Tanner Morgan time, then I would not be at all surprised to see this one kind of turn into a little bit of a back-and-forth affair. I'm inclined to agree with that. And that'll be a fun one. And then fun for a completely different reason – uh, is also at 1 o'clock on, e- on the ESPN Family Networks. This one's on ABC. Camping World Stadium for the Citrus Bowl in Orlando, Florida. Alabama against Michigan. Oh my God, am I... Like, I am, like, uncomfortable with how excited I am to watch this game because if Al- Alabama in past years, when they haven't made the playoff and or haven't been in, the cha- in a title game, they can really put up gigantic stinkers in these sorts of games but if Alabama comes out mad and seeing as how all of their receivers are playing in this game they're going to be really mad they might run Michigan off the field the last time Alabama was in this game the Citrus Bowl they boat raced uh I don't even know who was coach it might have been D'Antonio still it was that long ago but uh they absolutely hammered Michigan State something like 49-14 or 49-7 um I would not be at all surprised if that were the case, um, there is the letdown factor, but like you said, Bill, they only have a couple guys and I'm blanking on who they are, but, um, that are sitting this one out. But other than that, they're going to be at full strength. And I think there is a level of, of, uh, anger as opposed to, uh, malaise in this one. And, um, I think, I think Michigan has been playing, um, really well, but you saw what Ohio State was able to do in the passing game with a, a noticeably hobbled Justin Fields, um, and obviously two is out, and and you know the the potent passing game isn't what it what it could be with him, but uh, I'm not sure Michigan has the horses on defense to to hang around for long enough to keep this interesting. Yeah, that that I would agree with that. Uh... And plus, we get a whole offseason of, of 9 and 4 Jim Harbaugh talk, which will be surely a, a very Ooh, enjoyable thing. Yeah. Mm, give that to me, Matt. I, uh, God, I cannot wait. It's about, like, 
if Michigan's last two games of the year are getting the hell kicked out of them by Ohio State and then getting the hell kicked out of them by Alabama and then going into an offseason in which they're going to lose a ton on their defense and a few dudes on offense, including their quarterback. Oh, boy, can I not wait for that dialogue. Uh, the final Big Ten game on New Year's Day, this one's going to kick ass. Uh, 5 p.m. kick ESPN from Pasadena, the granddaddy of them all, the Rose Bowl between Oregon and Wisconsin. Uh, this game is cool, Matt, because... This might be as good of a battle in the trenches as you can watch in college football this year. And I think Wisconsin, they're going to they're gonna win a few times. They're going to be able to push, uh, at least on when they're on offense, they're going to be able to push Oregon's defense around a touch. I don't know if Jack Cohn will be able to throw enough to win this game. And on the other side of the football, I think that Oregon, uh, I think that Justin Herbert's going to have a game that makes... That, that makes it obvious he knows that NFL scouts are watching if that one makes sense. So I think Oregon comes out on top, but I really cannot wait for this one. I think, and I've, I've said this a ton over the year, I, th- I think Wisconsin is a really, really good football team. I think we kind of forgot about that because of the, the back-to-back losses to, to Illinois and then the blowout to Ohio State the following week. Um, you saw in the first half in the Big Ten Championship game, that they they can play with just about anyone in the country. Um, Ohio State obviously asserted their will um, in the second half of that and really took over. Um, but w- Wisconsin's kind of been become this forgotten team because of that Illinois loss, I think. And it's been easy to forget just how how good they've been really for, for you know all the year. You look at what they did against a pretty good Minnesota team in their their regular season finale, just totally shutting them down in their own stadium. Um, but like you said, I think ultimately. Um, Justin Herbert wins this one for Oregon. Just um, too too much skill there and and too much talent at at receiver. Um, we'd love to see our guy Jawan Johnson go out yes, with sir. with a nice game. Um, but I think you're going to see what Ohio State was able to do to some degree in the second half. Kind of become the case with with Justin Herbert taking this one over. I think in the second half of of the Rose Bowl. Yeah, Juwan, uh, get yourself a big payday here, my man. We're we're all rooting for you uh, back on back on the East Coast. Even if we, even if we would have liked it, if we weren't rooting for you, because we'd be going up against you. But neither here nor there. The last chronologically, the last big what could be the last Big Ten bowl game, uh, Tax Slayer Gator Bowl from TIAA Bank Field in lovely Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, Tennessee and Indiana, 7 o'clock kick on ESPN on January 2nd. Uh, our friends at Crimson Quarry are going to probably post themselves into jail over this game, but I'm... I, I Listen, I don't like Tennessee football. Like I ju- Just as a, as a general thing, I just really do not like Tennessee, and I can't totally explain why. And I, of course, have the soft spot in my heart for Indiana, so I really hope the Hoosiers are able to come out and win and win this game. And I think they might be able to, I mean, I, I know Tennessee's had a nice turnaround. Uh, you know, things looked a little bit dire at the beginning of the year, but they've won five in a row to enter this game. I still think Indiana is going to win. And I believe in my, our, who the Hoosiers are for the people, our Hoosiers. And I believe that we're going to be getting nine Indiana. Yeah. I, nothing about this game on the field will be as exciting as, as like you said, Crimson Corey against, Tennessee Twitter, which uh, was in full swing right after this was announced. 
Um, just, just some of the, the best stuff you'll see on, on Twitter. But um, no, I think this is a sneaky good game. Like you said, Bill, Tennessee's finished the season really strong. Um, they finally started to get some, some better quarterback play. Um, and I, but I, th- I feel like Indiana has kind of become this, this forgotten team. Um, you know, obviously they're hurt a little bit by, by, um, uh, I just blanked on their, their quarterback that got hurt earlier in the Michael year. Michael Penix. Um, you know, I'm going to go with Peyton Ramsey over him, but, um, we saw it, um, in happy Valley. They, they have plenty of weapons, especially if Watt Filer is able to go, which by all accounts, he should be able to, he should be healthy by now after that concussion against Penn state. But, um, I think this is another game where you could you could potentially see quite a bit of, of back and forth. I think it could be a pretty exciting game. Final game uh, that we're going to be talking about here, 8 p.m. ESPN from State Farm Stadium in Glendale, Arizona. It's the Fiesta Bowl college football playoff semifinal between second-ranked Ohio State and third-ranked Clemson. Uh, the Tigers are two-point favorites. Matt, I, I, I love LSU dearly. A... And I think Oklahoma's a good team, but I don't think they're going to win that game. I think this is the national title game. Um, I think that Ohio State and Clemson are the two best teams in college football. And I think that whomever wins this game is going to end up winning the national championship game a week later. I think that they, both of these teams are just stupid, stupid good. What are you kind of looking for in this one, and what do you think ends up happening? I think there, there's two things that, that jump out to me, and they're, they're kind of similar. The first is, can Clemson slow down Justin Fields? Um, I, I think they're going to be able to contain Dobbins. I think that defensive front um, is is talented enough to slow him down, at least to the point where this is a game that Justin Fields is going to have to win as opposed to um, Dobbins has really been the engine that drove that offense all year. I think they are the ultimate run to set up the pass, and, and if – if you can slow down Dobbins and, and put this game in Justin Fields' hands, um, he's certainly talented enough to win the game. I don't know if he can though. Um, and I think bad knee and, and the, the knee exactly. Um, he's he admitted as much earlier in the week. He said he thought it was about eighty to eighty-five percent. I don't know where that compares to where it was against uh, Wisconsin. I have no idea what Doctor Justin Fields uh, is qualified to do to say how good his knee is. Um, you wonder how much of that might be a little bit of gamesmanship. Um, but I, I think this game comes down down to the quarterbacks. I think um, both teams are are good enough on the line to to slow down the other team's running game. Um, no one talks nearly enough about how good Clemson is running the ball because of Trevor Lawrence, but uh, they are really good. Um, but I think Ohio State can can do that can do enough to slow down Etienne. And so you, you put it on Trevor Lawrence, and I'm inclined to say because he's been there before at this level, and you saw it a little bit when Penn State played Ohio State, and you saw it a little bit um, in the Big Ten Championship game, that you can get to Justin Fields a little bit. Um, I don't know if you can say that he, he's the one that, that won either of those games. I thought it was much more Dobbins than Fields. And I'm inclined to say, I think it's going to be a really, really close game, but I think I'm going to give the edge to Trevor Lawrence just because um, he was in the same spot a year ago and and was really quite impressive over the two-game playoff run last year for Clemson. That That's completely fair. And the other thing with talking about how good this Clemson team is is that for how good Lawrence is, he also has two five-stars on the outside and T. Higgins and Justin Ross who 
when they are cooking, like you cannot cover either of them. And I think that's something that Ohio State's going to have to deal with. I, I think that I mean, Ohio State secondary is outstanding, obviously. Um, I fully believe that they're going to win plenty of battles against this receiving core. But like you mentioned, the knee on field is what gives me so much pause here. And I think that Lawrence just knows how to win these types of football games. So despite the fact that I think at full strength, Ohio State is better, just Fields' knee, I'm just really put off by that. And I just don't know what's going to happen. He gets hit one time. You know, Isaiah Simmons comes off the edge, licks him. Tyler Davis gets through the middle, gets a shot on him. I don't know what he ends up looking like, and I just want to see what happens in that situation before I say I think Ohio State wins this game. I think they very much can. Like, I'm not going to talk about Ohio State like some scrappy underdog. I think they're an outstanding, outstanding football team. But if this game ends up coming down to quarterbacks, I trust Lawrence a touch more. And hopefully it does come down to quarterback. Like, I've mentioned this to you before, man. I think that these two are going to be this generation's Brady and Manning. Like, I think that with where they were as recruits, where they're going to they're gonna go 1-2 in the NFL draft next year, they are two of the best college football players, two of the best college football quarterbacks that we're ever going to see. And it's really cool that they're facing off in this sort of game. But for now, I think Clemson ends up winning this one. Uh, I'm guessing you're with me and you think LSU is going to take care of business against uh, uh, against Oklahoma. Yeah, I think that one could get out of hand, actually, just with the, the suspensions on Oklahoma's side. And um, I don't know what, you know, if they were at 100%, I don't know how Oklahoma slows down the LSU offense. And finally, national championship game. Are, are you also taking Clemson or are you taking uh, LSU? I, I don't know. Um, I, I'm i inclined to say Clemson because, again, the experience factor. Um but this LSU team is really, really good. Mm-hmm. But I, I probably would give just a hair of an edge to Clemson because of their defense. I think that's, I think they're very similar offensively. But I think Clemson's defense is good enough to to slow down LSU just enough. But um, I would not be surprised, regardless, in, in that game. Just like I, I wouldn't really be surprised if uh, if Ohio State ends up beating Clemson, even though I think the Tigers win. Yeah, I, the mar- for me, the margins between those top three teams are so slim. That like I the fact that yeah at full strength I think they could all beat any, the other team on their on their best day pretty easily. Uh, Fields being out, I mean Fields being banged up get, is what I think really concerns me there. Then for LSU, Clyde Edwards Hilaire, they're fantastic. Darren Sprolesian running back, uh, he is questionable to play against Oklahoma. don't know what his status would potentially be for the national championship game, but him being out would be, I mean, we saw against Alabama how he just took over that football game. So the one thing that I will give LSU is I think they, I think they'd be a little more willing to get into a shootout with Clemson. And if the, that game comes down to the final possession, well, I, I don't even necessarily want to, I think that with, Ohio State and Clemson, Ohio State's going to have to be about who's better on both sides of the football. If it was LSU and Clemson, I think LSU would just say, screw it. Like, we know you're going to score. We can score more than you. And if they get the ball last, they're going to feel like they're going to win that football game. But, yeah, I I think Clemson probably ends up winning the national title. Um, 
I reserve the right to change my mind after watching two drives of Justin Fields, but neither here nor there. It's gonna it's gonna be a fun bowl season. Uh, the this Miami Louisiana Tech game, the third quarter is about to end seven nothing. Uh, hope maybe that this ends up being funny to listen to in retrospect because it turns into a, an absolute scorcher in the fourth quarter, but I highly doubt that. Spoiler: It will not. It, yeah, it, it won't. Unless they put Tathan back in, <laughs> in which case. Anything, literally anything is possible. Yeah. I mentioned this to you, Matt, but man, I cannot believe that the guy who like, who moved to wide, had to move to wide receiver and like left the team a few times. I can't believe Ohio State wanted Justin Fields over him. Like just totally, totally wild that that's, uh, that's the case. But yeah, I think, uh, I think that's it. Any final things that you would like to say about uh, either Kurt Soraka or about the bowl game or anything else even. I hope Kirk Shiraka, I got it right that time is really good. And I hope Penn state wins. I agree on both counts. Uh, thank you to all of you as always for listening to this edition of Roar Lions radio. Uh, make sure you're subscribing on the various podcast platforms. It really helps on Spotify and it really helps if you do that on Apple podcasts and you leave us a five-star review over there. Make sure you keep, following us on all of our various social media channels and you keep reading and supporting the site you go out you buy some shirts you do all that stuff and one last time thank you very much for listening to this edition of Royal Lions Radio from my co-host Matt DeBear I'm Bill DeFilippo take care everyone